Hello, Nancy. Hey, hey, hey. So, uh, so today we're we're ultimately going to be talking about the Cold War, oddly enough. Uh, but I was wondering, what do you think of when you think of the Cold War? Oddly enough, Billy Joel. Bill, like not the wall falling on it, Billy Joel. <laughs> what? Okay, just he has this song explain. that I uh, called Leningrad. I don't okay. know. I just remember it from when I was a kid, and it comes to my mind it's about like billy joel growing up in long island during mm-hmm. the cold war and then kind of on the other side of the world you know a young kid growing up in russia you know loses his father um at leningrad grows up you know in communist in the soviet union then he becomes this a clown a clown what the, the the one over there like the one yeah 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 the guy clown? in russia becomes a clown okay but it's really sweet because like he wrote the song after he like met the guy when he oh. went billy joel did like a tour in russia and they met and they became friends and he's a clown that is fascinating yeah so that's 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 what i think of when i think of the cold war. Uh, i will never think of billy joel or clowns the same way ever again <laughs> Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Boppy. And this is Third Pod from the Sun, Centennial Edition. Centennial Edition. Oh, you just wait. All right. So we are not talking about Billy Joel today. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. We are talking about the Cold War, though. Yes, and the reason we're talking about the Cold War is we're kicking off our Centennial podcast series. So here is our producer, Lauren, to tell us a little bit more about AGU's Centennial and this podcast series we're embarking on. We're embarking on. Hi, everyone. Yeah, so 2019 is AGU's Centennial. It's our 100th birthday. Yay! Pretty awesome. So we decided we wanted to take a look back at the past 100 years of science, and we're going to talk, we're going to tell some stories about how science has influenced history and how history has influenced science over the past century. That's exciting. So uh, so what is our first story? So our first story, as you said, Shane, is about the Cold War. And so I this all started because I went to a talk earlier this year by a historian. His name is Matthias Dorius. He works at the University of Strasbourg in France. And Matthias gave a talk about how the Cold War actually helped to advance atmospheric science. So basically, he was explaining how because of you know nuclear weapons, the bomb testing, the arms race, the space race, and everything else that was going on in the middle of the 20th century, and especially the Cold War, scientists had to learn a lot about the atmosphere and how air behaves, and that really benefited us as a society. In the aftermath of the Second World War, during the Cold War, that's where really stratospheric science took off. In the second half of the 1950s, uh, the stratosphere becomes more and more of interest in the space than in general. The rockets, potentially, that carry the atom weapons, they would go through the stratosphere, so you have to know more about that. The rockets that are sent into space, yeah, uh, that starts with uh, Sputnik in 1957. The first weather satellites that arrive in 1960 and so on. So there's um, also this technology now becomes more and more important. And so you, that's for that reason you want to know more uh, about the, the stratosphere. I am a biologist by training. And I feel like we talk about a lot of spheres here, like stratosphere and troposphere and ionosphere like what are we what are we talking about here what what's all the spheres well so the first most bottom layer of earth's atmosphere is called the troposphere that's where all the weather happens the storms the clouds the rain all of that the next layer up is the stratosphere and the stratosphere is important because that's where the ozone layer is and once air gets up into the stratosphere it can kind of circle the globe it can go anywhere 
And it's actually interesting because, you know, down here close to the surface in the troposphere, the higher you go in altitude, it gets colder, right? You know, like when you climb a mountain, mm -hmm. it's really cold. The stratosphere is weird because the higher up you go in altitude, it actually gets warmer. I'm like picturing like an hourglass between the two, those two spheres. Like it's like yeah. inverse, maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That is, I think, what it is. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Matias was telling me that, you know, during World War II, there were some things going on that really brought the stratosphere to people's attention. So for the first time, people had to deal with radioactive fallout from nuclear bombs. And when fallout gets up into the stratosphere, it can go all over the globe. So they had to know, you know, if a bomb went off, you know, where would the fallout go? It becomes this major issue. So the government, the U.S. government, created a special lab just to look into fallout specifically. They wanted to know if they could detect a nuclear explosion, you know, if they detected fallout somewhere. And they wanted to know that, you know, if an explosion happens, where does the fallout go? <laughs> so this lab they created actually still exists. It's called the Air Resources Lab, and it's in College Park, Maryland. And I got to actually speak with a couple scientists there. The first one is Jerome Hefter, but he goes by Nick. He's a meteorologist, and he's retired, but he worked at this lab back in its infancy in the 60s. And his job was to observe the nuclear bomb tests the uh, U.S. did back in the Pacific Ocean. They had a whole series they wanted to test before the treaty came in for no more testing in the atmosphere. <laughs> that was the uh, Dominic series at Christmas Island, 1962. That's the series that I really came in on, and I, um, and I was out in Christmas Island, and there they were testing uh, megaton, eight, ten megaton shots. This is a thousand times the size of the ones that were blown off in Japan. your role there? Well, we were forecasting where the fallout, if there was fallout, where it would go. In the Pacific, during Dominic, we wanted to make sure that anything blown there would not go up towards Hawaii. And what we did is just make sure before each shot that the atmosphere would not transport whatever fallout there was, even though we didn't really know, because we had never had large-scale air bursts before. And you had to be very conservative on these forecasts. Anything that was heading up towards the Hawaiian area, you just canceled it for that day. The planes flew in from uh, Hawaii and early in the morning, and if I gave them the go-ahead, they'd do it. Occasionally, we had a change forecast, so it took them a while to come down. Uh, if they couldn't detonate, they were not a very happy crew. <laughs> Putting one of these things, you know, a megaton uh, bomb in an aircraft, <laughs> it's not a simple matter. Just tell me a little bit about what it was like for you witnessing these nuclear explosions, these tests, and being there on site. You know, <laughs> what was your experience with it? Awesome. <laughs> the, when I first went out, I went out uh, uh, to Christmas Island. Um, they were, the first shot I saw was, I think, something like an eight megaton shot. And, of course, I was there by myself because... I, everybody else had vacated. They were going back and forth. I had never been out to anything like this before. I had a very good friend who did the, 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 the sound 
forecasts for the uh, bombs. And they said what you had to do, what he said is you have to, first of all, we all had high-density glasses. And then what you had to do was stand with one foot in front of the other and one foot behind and lean into it because the impulse of the shot would come up. Well, they knew I was... I was a novice at this. So I did just that. I mean, I had no idea. They shot these things off at before sunrise. Three, two, one, zero. As we were watching, the entire sky lit up. It was like it was noon. The shock wave will arrive shortly. Keep firm footing until wave passes. It just lit everything up. It was like noon. This was a, it was a crack. It really hurt. And the fellow who told me, you know, to stand, w beforehand was watching me and kind of laughing. When I turned around, he was on the ground. He got knocked over. He missed the forecast of the original pulse. It was much higher than he thought. It broke practically every dish and window in the main camp. <laughs> But, but that's, uh, I mean, you know, this is awesome. Oh, my it, God. It was, How far away from the blast were we you? We were 15 miles, about 15 miles out. Wow. Hello? This is a test. The radiation from that was into the stratosphere, was studied for years afterwards. started to learn a lot about the exchange between stratosphere and troposphere. All right, I got to ask, what did they learn in all of this? Yeah, so like Nick said, these tests allow them to learn a lot about how air moves between different layers of the atmosphere. And Ariel Stein, who's another meteorologist, and he's actually director of the Air Resources Lab, he told me all about what they learned. This radiation was used, the, the technical term for that is it's used as a tracer. So it tells you how, you know, it's kind of like putting a dye on a, on a swimming pool. And actually you can see how the flow of the atmosphere occurs. And that, that's a unique way that has been the trademark of, of this laboratory for years. Basically, we're trying to find ways of understanding how the atmosphere behaves using this kind of information. That was, at that time, it was pretty easy to measure radiation. You know, that's one of the things that you can go very, very low to the detection limit and, and you can get a pretty good signal there. So with that information, you basically know how the atmosphere is moving, you know, the, the parcels of air around, and you figured out what, what is the circulation patterns of, of the Earth. That was, of course, in the, in the stratosphere, but, you know, we do it all the time in the lower troposphere when we were trying to figure out where the pollution or where some chemical will go. 
we knew that the Russians were detonating large detonations in central, I'm sorry, the Chinese, in central China. And they were getting radiation in the central United States. Iodine uh, was being discovered in some of the animals here. And they finally discovered that the detonations in China were coming over the United States, you know, up in the stratosphere. Raining out in a storm, the rain would rain out the iodine onto the fields. The cows would eat the, the grain and put it in the milk so that the levels of contamination in the milk were being found and they f figured that for kid, for babies you had to be careful so we what we had to do is find out when the Chinese would shoot a, a, they didn't tell you <laughs> we, we, yeah. you know we measured in the aircraft and things like this where it was going if it was coming over the United States if it was going to rain we would then tell whoever EPA or somebody that there was a chance of rain out or wash out, mainly rain out, of radioactive material, the, they would then get in touch with the farmers. And the farmers would then take their animals and put them on dry hay inside during that period so that they would not be eating contaminated stuff. How, how long did the bombing, like was all this bombing going on for that they were testing? Well, so it started after the war, the war ended in the 40s, and then it went all the way up in the 50s into the early 60s. Wow. Yeah, but in 63, so the U.S., the Soviet Union, the other countries that were testing, they realized that atmospheric testing just had to stop. So they eventually signed a treaty banning all atmospheric tests. Mm. And at this point, because of the fallout, so all the tests went underground, essentially. But so this, but this issue of fallout, so it wasn't a big deal anymore, but it got scientists thinking about what actually would happen if there was a nuclear war. And we all just started bombing each other. And a couple, there's a group of scientists, and they came up with this idea of nuclear winter. Um, and so this is just the idea that if you know enough countries engage in nuclear war, the bombs would vaporize so much material from the surface that it would eventually rise up into the atmosphere and create this dust cloud that would block out the sun. Then you have the whole debate in 1983 about the nuclear winter. Yeah. That means that the party, um, nobody should attack because uh, it would come back, basically, would affect the whole northern northern hemisphere. Um, so that was heavily debated uh, throughout the 1980s. But this group, um, TTAPS, as it was called, um, which uh, Carl Sagan was part of this group, this group argued that the smoke from, from destroyed cities that would be rising into the stratosphere and stay there for a long time and would affect uh, seriously uh, the, the climate. So that was heavily debated. Of course, it, it could not be, um, the, no experiment could be done. Right. <laughs> or it, could, it could be done only once. Yeah. Uh, that even um, a smaller war uh, between uh, two countries like Pakistan or India would already be sufficient to have uh, major consequences um, for on a global level. Wow. I love Carl Sagan. I know. I mean, who doesn't? We actually have a frame picture of Carl Sagan on our wall. No, we got this cool. Really? We got this really <laughs> cool artist, like, like, art, you know, art. When we were in New Orleans, oh. like, you know, they sell like art on the street, and this one guy was doing like the had these pictures of Carl Sagan, and we have it hung on the wall. Of but I do, you do. I mean, I love Cosmos, the old Cosmos. Our own planet 
is only a tiny part of the vast cosmic tapestry, a starry fabric of worlds yet untold. He's the, probably the best science writer, communicator that ever lived. I know. He's great. And his turtlenecks. But okay, so but how was he involved in all of this stuff? Yeah, Carl Sagan was kind of like this surprise that popped out of this story when I was talking to Matthias about it. Carl Sagan, you know, I always thought of him just as the cosmos guy studying other planets, but he was actually an atmospheric scientist back in the 60s and 70s. Um, But all that kind of changed around the time of the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War in the 1960s affects the way um, scientists also think about participating in military projects mm-hmm. because they realize um, that, that something something is wrong. Um, uh, the, the knowledge of the atmospheric science has been used also in the war. And so they, they sort of um, take their distance, let's say it that way. Uh, and they don't want to have to do anything to do with these kinds of, of research. And Carl Sagan, for example, was um, in all the, the important circles. He was um, also in in an advisor group for a secret advising group. And uh, he, at some point, said, no, I don't want to do the, be part of this anymore. And all his colleagues said, you're crazy because you're losing all the connections. But he took this distance and worked more on planetary um, atmospheric sciences. And uh, that's what he uh, worked on in the, in the early 1970s then. And uh, so he became interested in planetary atmospheres. And for the younger generation, like, they actually said, okay, maybe it's better to be on the safer side. Let's do research which is, has no connections with um, military research. And that's um, an attitude that's very much inspired by the Vietnam War. Wow. So it's kind of weird to think that without the Cold War or the Vietnam War, we may never have had Cosmos. Yeah, oh. that's. Can you imagine? I, it's, I no mean, Neil especially Neil Tyson. No Neil deGrasse. <laughs> yeah, like it's wild. So, how do scientists use this stuff now? Like all this information that they learned. So, another thing that came out of the 20th century, the second half, was the development of the computer. So, for the first time, scientists were able to create computer models of the atmosphere because before they were just drawing, doing all these back trajectories by hand, which takes a lot of time and effort. Now they had computers and they could look at so many different things. So what they do now is they use computers to create models of the atmosphere and use it to forecast things like where the ash cloud from a volcanic eruption might go or what happens if a nuclear bomb goes off or what if there's uh, an accident at a nuclear power plant, where will the fallout go? And these modeling tools are used by the scientific community and by the weather service um, to provide information to the public. Uh, For instance, if there is a chemical spill in, in a street, in a city, they use one of our models that has been developed based on, on, on this nuclear fallout, mm-hmm. basically telling you where the chemical is going to go and what quarters or what places need to be evacuated from that. The same for volcanic ash. So you see that the detonation of a nuclear device is very similar to a volcano eruption. So what we learned from that, we now we translate it to, you know, and we transfer it to an application like uh, uh, like a volcanic ash modeling, and we can tell the, the airplanes how to avoid that ash. You know, in the 50s, um, the government and mostly the Department of Energy started to explore the idea of using atomic energy to create electricity, okay? So those nuclear power plants were 
starting to generate electricity. But one of the problems, and that's why this lab was called upon, was, okay, what happens if something goes wrong, if there is a leak, if there is an explosion? So where is that radiation going? And of course, you know, we we were really involved with when Chernobyl happened mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Russia. Nuclear experts in both capitals say it appears that a meltdown has taken place and a fire is burning out of control. Soviet officials are now calling the Chernobyl nuclear plant accident a disaster. Our lab was the lab that discovered where the Chernobyl uh, accident happened. Really? Yeah. I was, it was a Monday morning. I mean, I remember this. We were so involved. It was a Monday morning, and somebody called and said there were some very high radiation readings in Sweden. And would somebody look into what they were about? The main concern of the United States is we had troops all over Europe, and it was, uh, they were worried about any U.S. troops. And so uh, my boss, Lester Machta at the time, said, you go ahead and do some back trajectories from where the sample was taken. They did the sample in about a day or so, a couple of days, and found it very high. So we went there and did a back trajectory because they thought if it was coming from one of the power plants in France, or there were a lot of them in France, this would directly involve our troops. Well, when we went back, we discovered that the back trajectory went towards uh, Western Russia and down toward into the Ukraine. And so we immediately got that word to the White House or somewhere. And um, they then talked to the Soviet embassy at the time. The Soviets finally admitted that there was an accident, just a small accident at Chernobyl. Putting it out is going to be a very difficult problem. I don't think anybody has ever dealt with it. Western nuclear experts are saying it is the worst nuclear plant disaster in history. They had not told anybody about it in Russia or out of Russia. Well, it turns out our back trajectory was remarkably close. Mm-hmm. So we just took a back trajectory back two or three days, and it was in, it, it, the trajectory went, so we were pretty sure it came from Russia. And when, of course, they finally admitted it and told us what the size, it, this was devastating. But you see how how after so many years of experience, we can develop the tools that are more and more accurate and we can predict the, the transport and dispersion. documentary recently about like the animals of Chernobyl. It's the rewilding. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's like all of these uh there's like a ton of animals there now. There's like frog communities and amphibians and there's deer, deer, wolves deer. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no it's true. Yeah, cuz yeah, that's my reference to Chernobyl cuz I was 2 months old when Chernobyl happened. So My reference may have also come from Billy Joel. Oh, God. You know, oh, it's, no. No, no, I feel like he definitely probably has a reference in We Didn't Start the Fire. I was just I was, like, yeah. like I was thinking it in my head. I was like, "Oh man, that's that's really on the nose." <laughs> And we're back. Okay. 
Uh, all right. So that's all from uh, Third Pod from the Sun uh, Centennial Edition. Thanks so much to Lauren for bringing us this story and to Matthias, Ariel, and Nick for sharing their work with us. The podcast is also produced with help from Josh Spicer, Olivia Ambrosio, and uh, Katie Brendel, oh, and Liza Lester. And thanks to Robin Murray for producing this episode. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this podcast. Please rate and review us um, on Apple Podcasts, and you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app um, or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. All right, thanks all. And be on the lookout for more Centennial episodes to come. As well as our regular episodes as well. Oh, yeah, which will drop in your feed uh, at the beginning of every month like usual. So thanks again. Thanks again.